Dotnet Rocks, episode 990, with guest Clemens Vasters. Recorded Wednesday, May 21st, 2014. Hey, thank you very much. Welcome back. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's Dotnet Rocks. What do you know, Richard? Yeah, it must be good then. I'm in Belgium. Where are you? I'm in, you know, Connecticut. I'm in at Pop Studios. What a concept. Uh, every once in a while, somebody calls it PWAP or, you know, asks me what does it stand for as an acronym. <laughs> and I thought I would clear it up right now. So, uh, yeah, hit me. Actually, in World War II, it was an acronym. It, it stood for pregnant without permission. PWAP. But that is not what PWAP is. In my circle of friends, when I was a kid, a pwop was a forehead slap, usually administered from one kid to another kid. However, right. you le- smacked your friend in the forehead. Exactly. And uh, we all gave each other pwops regularly. However, as I grew up and uh, became more self aware, uh, the pwop, the forehead slap was administered to oneself, you know, usually accompanied by its brother. Don't! Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes at a moment of realization, you know, the aha moment. And so that's what it came. Uh, that's that's what it is. It's the sound of a forehead slap. Awesome. So there you go. If it, just it. in case you want to know, almost a thousand shows later, we've explained what pwop means. Hey, man, let's roll that music. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, as you know, um, gadgeteering is a, a great way to enjoy the Internet of Things. It's, uh, you know, Netduino in, is the .NET Arduino, and Gadgeteer is a sort of a, a managed .NET. Uh, and I, say, I would say it's not Arduino, but it's a .NET micro-framework kind of uh, answer to Netduino. And GHI yep. Electronics is the company at the, at the heart of it. But there are other companies that are making hardware for Gadgeteer. And, nice. and some of them, uh, many of them, have similar stuff to what GHI does. GHI has the most. But there's one out there that has some interesting things that I'd like to highlight. And it's Solder Monkey, or Solder Monkey, if, uh, to be Richardish. Solder Monkey. <laughs> Is that a term? <laughs> Is that really a word? So we say solder, I say solder, you say solder. Yes. But it's S O L D E R monkey.net. And uh, if you follow the gadgeteer link and then into the different areas uh, in the different kinds of boards and sensors, they have a lot of sliders and uh, analog to digital. They have an analog digital converter, they have an analog mux, and they have sliders and things like that. Stuff that GHI does not have. So I thought I would highlight that. Well, this is cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it's nice to see the Gadgeteer is spreading, right? Mm. I mean, it, my, I've come to appreciate the Gadgeteer hardware is a little expensive, but it's very modular, so you can do lots of customizations. So it's cool to see other modules. Exactly. That's exactly what I like about it. There's no soldering. You just sort of take the, the main boards and plug things in, and there's different module types and you know you can plug an a type into this a type socket and yeah so it's very easy to plug 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 type some code run it and have a prototype yeah and then if you want to go further then you actually go to the more hardwired stuff and get the price down yeah this is this is like parts for your lab to keep with you when you're experimenting exactly awesome dude yeah great for students too Nice find. Yeah. SolderMonkey.net. Love it. And that's it, Richard. Who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment on show 981, and that's the one we did with Christian Wire. Oh, speaking yeah. Speaking of Germans. Uh, when we're talking about uh, Windows Azure Pack and the whole thing around, um, you know, cloud and NSA and so forth. And, and Marcus Carlson had a great, I mean, very straightforward comment. He said, uh, one of the most important revelations that we've had about the NSA is not that they are doing more or less what they're supposed to do, but that encryption works. Mm. You know, the, there's a point here that, that NSA was actually trying to weaken encryption in certain cases, and that when encryption is in place, they, they couldn't get at. Right. 
So they need to have a back door into encryption in order to do what they do. Right. Yeah. So it just sort of makes the point that encryption actually works. You know, there's another thing that that the Snowden revelations really got into, which was also that uh, the U.S. actually has a very substantial cyber division that's doing a lot. There was this sort of indication for a long time that that maybe the Chinese were running the internet waves and, and they were the ones with all the exploits. But when you start seeing what the NSA was doing, you get a sense that clearly there are a group of very talented people on the U.S. side doing mm-hmm. a lot in, ser- in terms of cyber warfare. By the way, a brand new story just broke in the last couple of days before we recorded this on the 21st about oh, yeah. uh, the Chinese, some five Chinese military officials that were caught by the United States hacking into uh uh, uh, United States companies, and and the FBI has put them on the most wanted list, like posters, pictures. Yeah, Charge them. them. Charge them. To which the Chinese government said, "Really, <laughs> you're you're <laughs> you're telling us that we're hacking into you, and that's bad. Really, yeah. They have a point, but they are evading the issue. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? It, it is interesting to see how that plays out." Mm. So Marcus goes on to say, if you think that the NSA means you don't have security anymore, then you didn't have a lot of security to begin with. Mm -hmm. If the NSA can read your communications, then probably someone else can too. Directly to your point, Mr. Franklin. Yeah. We are all responsible for securing our own data. We can't pretend that anyone out there will be nice to us. That's right. Yeah. Totally with you, Marcus. Thank you so much for your comment. Good stuff. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And uh, just before we leave that point, and I don't know if I said it on that show, but I think what you really need to do is consider everything that goes out on the Internet public as a conversation you'd have in a coffee shop. And uh, as long as you can do that, you uh, shouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah, not a whole lot. I mean, I would call it sort of confidential. You're not intentionally sharing anything, but you would be prepared to defend yourself if someone actually brought it up. It's right. not like it's truly private. True. But yeah. I'm totally with you, dude. Right. Just be a good person, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative online training library on the planet. They have over 3,000 developer, IT, and creative training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They're still releasing around 40 new courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including Agile, Scrum, TFD, and a full library on design patterns. Of course, lots of cloud stuff as well. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us welcome back to the show Mr. Clemens Vasters. Clemens is a product architect for the Azure messaging platform at Microsoft, including Service Bus and Internet of Things platform components. He is a former Microsoft regional director and has authored online training for Pluralsight as well. Nice. Welcome back, Clements. Hello. I'm glad that you have me back, and very honored. Well, we're very honored to have you. Mr. Das Blog, going back to the day. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was my uh, initial, that was my first big open source thing. And actually, it it turned Scott Hanselman onto open source, which is something that's uh, still amazing to me. Yep. You so I, sat down, I just sat down and re- wrote an ASP.NET app, and uh, it's still around. That's the most amazing thing. I'm still using it. Yeah, it's very cool. And then Hanselman took that over, of course. So, you you know, it's the, the thread, the historical thread of .NET runs through your, your life there. Yes, it does. Yes, it in does. In some way. So what are you working on now? I work on trying to get physical product consumer goods and products companies to make their products smarter and uh, to help them with that challenge. So we're um, working with, um, so I'm working very closely with customers, which is um, on the solution side too. Um, And I'm in the product team here at Microsoft um, that builds uh, service bus. So we're the the Azure uh, in the Azure core team now. 
um, building service bus and also building now kind of components which are geared towards making Internet of Things applications. Uh, and I will get into more details about that, what that means um, possible. And so just give just to give a few examples, um, we are talking to truck and car manufacturers who uh, want to have uh, connected car capabilities and not only want to have this as a capability that they sell for like you know, 5,000 euros or $5,000 as an extra package, but mm. uh, they actually want to put them uh, put those things into every single vehicle. And then there's you know, factory floor automation where um, you want to have telemetry information logs just out of uh, industrial machines so that a manufacturer or a service organization can actually know how that thing behaves. Mm -hmm. Because right now the reality is that, um, I mean, we in IT, we're, we're accustomed to, and I have a web server and, and an application spew out logs, and then we can go through the logs and we can learn how that application behaves. Mm. Right. And that kind of that kind of consolidated and consolidated monitoring of 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 um, operational data is something that is just growing. And then actually getting this co consolidated across sites is something that is almost unheard of. So they're getting to that point in industrial automation now that they're taking these kind of almost IT best practices and want to go and make them make them happen in uh, in industrial machines. But for that, all that stuff needs to go and start talking. And um, and that turns out to be a little difficult because they're dealing with super high uh, throughput. They're dealing with enormously high scale. Um, and if, if you think about, you know, you have a if you have a major car manufacturer who wants to go and put bidirectional connectivity into every vehicle, then you're talking about a million, three million, five million cars that they ship every every year. That all of a sudden needs to go need to be connected to a system. And now you're very quickly at the scale that the largest websites in the world work. Well, I mean, wouldn't that just overwhelm the cellular network to do that? Uh, no. The so the actually the, so the cellular well uh, so let's back up. Not in Germany, Richard. Yeah, we have we have everything we have is superior, obviously. Um, <laughs> we um, we have um, um, there will be cellular is one way to go and connect stuff um, right. for last for last mile. It is not the only one, and there is very interesting stuff happening in the last mile space, um, where um, a lot of—I I can't name names—but there are a lot of well-known networking companies or lesser-known networking companies who want to steal the business away from the mobile operators. The mobile operators run networks that have been built for voice and built for texting so for premium services for them the the digital network that sits underneath is kind of a necessity but it's not right. the primary purpose so what you're seeing now is that there's companies which are coming up with with different kinds of networks that are just for data transfer which are optimized for all kinds of different scenarios around low power um around you know having low footprint for the radios um have uh, and low power is a big big deal and then also different ra different ranges and also different throughput profiles. So there's, for instance, one company in um, they, they were just in the news in the last few days, um, a company in in France um, that is building up a, a national national networks throughout Europe, and they're also going to start in the U.S. Um, and the data package that you can buy from them is 200 messages a day, where each message is 12 bytes. That's it. That's it. But it runs over public, unlicensed ISM band, which means they don't have any licensing costs. And the, right. the, the packages that they're so, – so the data services that they're, that they're providing are really just what they sell as a backend services. So they're giving you datagrams, basically. So this is infinitely cheaper. And if your application is to you – know, let's say you have a large farm and you have 5,000 cows, a um, right. very large farm. Um, and so you just want to know whether the cows are alive <laughs> and how they're doing. Then you just take a you know three dollar device, which includes the two dollars for that RF chip, um, and put that uh, somewhere on the cow. And with that, you just uh, you know read how the cow is doing, and that's all you need. You don't need anything that's more sophisticated. And for that, that's that's sufficient. For that, you don't need to have LTE, which is you know a major contributor to global warming. Right. So I have a question here, and that is these low power devices and you know little sensors and things that we're going to be attaching to various industrial pieces uh, that will be accessible from the web, what kind of security can they actually have on them? This is a big problem because 
Wasn't it the HVAC system that the the hackers of Target got into? And and wasn't it? I don't know what system it was. I don't know if they actually connected to a device or they connected to a main computer that connected to their HVAC system. But somehow they got in through this industrial automation system at at Target, and it just sort of speaks of we're not really thinking about that. We're we're just because we're t- it's telemetry. You know, we're just connecting and we're looking at stuff. But how much how much does security? How much of a problem is security with the Internet of Things? It is. It is one. So there are two big problems, and security is one of them. And the other one is just sheer scale in 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 providing connectivity. And those things are both are very closely related. Yeah, because I would think that security adds an extra requirement of scalability. It puts it pushes more, you know, pushes more performance requirements and, and scalability requirements on the on these little devices that are already pretty taxed out. Yes. So, so I have a mantra in this whole thing. So, as I'm as I'm as I'm talking about the the Internet of Things, and and uh, I rather talk really about the verticals because that's where the the action happens. So, you talk about home automation or smart home, and you talk about you know smart mobility. You smart talk about those those various areas because Internet of Things has become this right. term which the marketing people have destroyed already. I mean, they have, <laughs> they, have managed, they have managed to kill it before it even got big. Like. It cloud lasted for like two years or three years to be useful, yeah. and the Internet of Things is now instantly useless. Instantly, yeah. Um, so the security, so security is something that is enormously important. Let's so the HVAC example. Let's let's stick with that. So your people think, and that's at first blush, and that's the thing that security is the problem. That none of the, all of those things are obvious. Think that oh well, it's just sensor data. So uh, and it's from you know it reads the temperatures how important can that be to secure it the thing is the data needs to be trustworthy meaning you need to be sure that that data comes from where you believe it is from from what you believe it is because if someone can go and 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 fake the data or can inject it or falsify it then you could have very interesting effects for instance um, you want to destroy a building or make it render it unusable so one thing you could do is uh, you could go and take the uh, the the smoke smoke alarm sensors if they're not protected, and you basically just inter- inject uh, alarms into the system. The sprinklers go right, on. Set off all the smoke alarms. Get everybody to leave the building. Well, or the, yes, or the sprinklers then, go off and ruin all and the, the, the yeah. sprinkler. Exactly, the sprinklers go on because they react to that. Uh, because right. you're, you're injecting this, and now you're, um, if you have sensors that shall detect whether um, you know the sprinklers went on, you're also injecting false data about those, so that they can't alar- they can't uh, uh, warn you that the building is being flooded, and then you have achieved your um, your objective. Um, so that's one. So well, this it, this is not that far from what Stuxnet did. To the Iranian, you know, uranium uh, enrichment program, where they Correct. they made this the uh, centrifuges spin out of control till they ripped themselves apart. But the instruments themselves said everything was fine. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So that's so the sensor information needs to be trustworthy. It needs to come from. Um, you, you need to have trustworthiness into the device. So because and and so that and there comes a number of challenges comes with that. Um, let, let me step back and let me give you kind of a, my view on um, the relationships between things because that actually matters for the security sure. purpose. Um, your phone and your tablet and your PC is um, a terminal, right? It's a terminal that where you guide a that machine to interact with a number of hosts or servers, systems. And it's something you is under your control, and you are supervising that machine. So there's a there's a whole security protection context that you give that machine. Like you have the phone in your pocket, or you have the laptop in your bag, and you take it out and you log in, and you have the machine under control, and people lock it when they walk away. And so there's a lot of security mechanisms that you kind of give the machine by just being around it and protecting it because it's your it's your possession. Um, right. That's a found. That's that is foundational for how the security model works. Also, we have a security model with the web that is built for um, human inspection. Really, so you go to a website that you believe is the bank, and then um, you and there's a lot of the it, checks that we make implicitly 
where we say, you go to your bank website and the bank website shows up in the right way. Um, you have a green uh, address bar these days and you can, and there's a certificate so pe where people, we're giving people hints that it's the right place and they can go and read this. So people do all kinds of verification steps um, for the software because the software is really, it's promiscuous in the way that you are telling it to go to a server and kind of you are, the, the human being is doing those checks on, on whether the server is legit and whether that's not a fishy place uh, you are being directed to, but it's something that seems like a legitimate place and then you start interacting with it. Okay, right. Right? So that's, so that's the foundation kind of of the security model that we have today for the internet is that um, a lot of that interaction happens through the web and there's a lot of security context that's being, that, that is around it, that is guided by human beings. Now, when we take things... Um, when we take devices which are in public space, that is very different, because you take a you could take a sensor that is let's say a, a temperature and pollution sensor that sits on the side of the building. Right. That thing is completely vulnerable, and because you can go and walk up to it, you can steal it, you can uh, destroy it, you can take it off, and you can start poking around in it, and it's unsupervised. So and nobody's owning it and taking care of it, but it's just a you know it's just a sensor that sits somewhere and it's uh, if you want to go and destroy something, um, then that's a good place to start. Like if you have a, a security system, then taking the security sensors apart um, or or stealing the security sensors is probably a good start. So, and the role those those devices play towards the system is also a different one. The terminal is a human machine interface. The the device is really the eyes and the ears and the hands of the backend system of the control system. So you have a, and then the Internet of Things turns into a very classic notion. You have terminals, you have systems, and you have peripherals. So the right. things are peripherals. So what we're talking about is here is how do we how do we secure the peripherals that are effectively the emissaries or satellites of a backend control system? That's what we're talking about. Sometimes your peripherals are cows. <laughs> yes. Sometimes your peripherals are cows. Exactly. We did a show and on somebody cows spoofing once. my cows. Didn't we do a yep. show on cows once? Yeah. Who, who Remy Carone talked about the. That was the, Remy. The, apparently, cows have data privacy rights. <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that, data privacy is a, is a big topic there as well. Like who owns mm -hmm. the, you? So you're now building a system where you have peripherals. And let's say those peripherals right. are car are cars. Let, let me give you let me give you, give you a quick example of of the role of that peripheral car in the context of a system. So let's say you have a car sharing you have a car sharing solution, and uh, so you walk up to a website and you say I want to go go from A to B, and so you map out your routes and you have this a multimodal website that says you can take the train or you can go and take the bus or actually uh, you could be two or three hours quicker if you were just driving. Um, but you don't have a car, so how about you use a car sharing service? And you say yes, fine. Press a button, and then seconds later, a pop-up appears on your phone. Hey, your car is ready. Um, now walk down the street and go right, and then walk another hundred meters, and then you find on the right side a silver car that's yours, and that's your car sharing car. So you walk there, right. and then you use that app and push the button, and the car opens because that's your key now. Right. Mm. Right. And then you get into the car. The car already knows where you need to go. And so you can go start driving and uh, the destination is already there. Um, you might want to go and, 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 and get, get gas on the way because they're not always going to be full. So you can use your phone or some, some, some card that's in the car to go and, um, and pay for the gas while you, uh, but you will only be charged for what you use. So that car actually you know, tracks, keeps track of how much you use. And then once you, right. once you, once you get to the destination, the car will tell you where to park because it has information about the, the, par the parking spots. And then you basically check out of the car with your phone um, using that app, and, and that's also what locks the car. So now you all of a sudden have a have a relationship between um, the phone and the car, but that is intermediated. Because your phone will only work as a key while you're booked into that system. Right. So, so the interaction is you are sending the, the unlock commands to a control system that's central, which will go and then validate that you are who you are 
and will then check whether you're authorized to do that. And then the control system will send that command to that vehicle, which will then go and, um, and unlock. So it's not a peer-to-peer interaction because that would be um, clumsy and also we, would be you know, problematic in terms of security because you need but to yeah, have – You a need a security authority somewhere. Exactly. It sounds like your standard uh, card ID kind of stuff, the business rules based on what uh, – you know, who the authentication – you know, who, who is authenticated and what the context is. Correct, but yeah. then you need to have you need to have a you need to have a judge on this. So basically, what we what we just what that scenario just illustrated is the car is actually a peripheral for that control system, where the control system will mm-hmm. make a decision on when the car gets unlocked. Right, and the the command to unlock that car comes from the control system based on a trigger that comes in through a mobile app. But the ultimate decision right. of of doing that operation is done by the control system. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, so. There's there, there's an interesting there's some interesting security story and also kind of interesting requirement coming out of this, and that is, you should be able to walk up to that car, day or night at any moment, push that button and the car should open. That requires that, that inside car, the window where you're renting the car, you mean? Yeah, right. yeah, as but, long but as you're any, authorized. Yeah, exactly. But and the control system should be able to, to give that command at any point in time. Mm-hmm. So for that, it needs to have a way to go and talk to that car, right? It needs to have a it ha- needs to have a network path yep. to talk to that car. Right. This is the first big puzzle that people have, and that is how can you actually make this happen in terms of um, a security, and b in terms of just just creating that communication path. And that's where um, we see um, a lot of colorful craziness going on. Uh, where people are trying to solve that problem using classic networking technology. So we have cases where, and we're going into these engagements and and customers are calling us um, or they're going to the Microsoft local offices and then they they kind of get us get us involved um, because that's kind of known inside of Microsoft that we're doing things like this. Mm-hmm. Right. Where um, they start, the customers start with, they make a VPN and the car dials into that VPN. Then they get an address via DHCP, and then that DHCP address gets registered in DNS. And so the the control system always then goes and resolves that address of the of the car via DNS, and then the car acts as a server inside of that VPN. So we've seen this as a pattern over and over, uh, not only in cars but also in industrial automation. That's how people do it. There right. is a num- number of things wrong about that model. Yeah. First, a lot of those a lot of those companies think that once they've done a VPN, they're done with a security model. So I know of cases where um, effectively commercial vehicles dial into a VPN like this, and there's no further security whatsoever. So if you wanted, and if you could go and own one of those commercial vehicles, you could talk to all the other commercial vehicles and give them commands and read the data out. Hmm. Um, or you could own the entire control system because they believe that having a, a VPN is, is enough of a secure zone and, and kind of gives them security. And I kind of always remind people that there is no S in VPN. Um, <laughs> be- because it really only gives you a secure cable into an otherwise completely wide open Ethernet hub. Right. So that's one thing we're seeing in terms of security that people are trying to people are trying to solve this on a networking on the networking level because the way how they try how they're starting these efforts is by going to their IT department. And that's how the IT department knows because they're not building applications, they're trying to, you know, they're building infrastructure and they're combining infrastructure and that's how they start start solving that problem. Where it gets more interesting sure. is is when you have a vehicle and that vehicle is moving. Because when that vehicle is moving, it's hopping networks. So if you get one of those M2M um, uh, cellular um, SIMs, yep. you have a feature there that you, and this is what everybody's selling, you have a feature there that you don't get when you have a voice or texting SIM. For voice, because voice traffic is regulated, um, they cannot offer national roaming, so you can't be hopping networks. 
um, at least not within the same coverage area. And that depends on you know what the what the where you are. But in Europe, um, certainly in Germany, the the competing networks can't uh, have the customers roam across the networks with voice. With right. M2M, right. with M2M, they can. So when you're driving with uh, you know uh, leisurely 180 kilometers per hour over the uh, over the German autobahn, you are hopping through those networks. So you're kind of connecting to a base station, and then you're going to the next base station. You're going to the next base station, and uh, whatever tricks they can try to keep your address stable completely goes away once you do a national roaming you're hopping between o2 and vodafone and dutch telecom and and all those different operators because you're going to get a new address so now um if you're sticking with that model you now have a every time you get a new address you have to go and do the vpn handshake again you need to get a new dhcp address you need to get you need to register a dns again and that happens pretty frequently which means you are um uh, usually not reachable and then, at 180 miles an hour, you're doing three miles per minute, which means you're probably changing changing cell nodes every two minutes. Yes. So, <laughs> so the customers are a little puzzled about how they're going to solve that problem because they because in their in their head, um, the device I want to talk to is a server. Right. That's the that's the general notion. The general idea is that there these are devices that are living on the internet and they have a, a sort of an an, an a reachable uh, they're reachable by a network address and that's how you do that. And so right. people are just puzzled on how this can possibly be solved in uh, you know in a way that this actually scales and then yet that you don't have all this um, all this handshaking taking place and then you have a, a, a temporal availability issue. So let's say you want to you want to go and tell a car. Um, so so a car has subscribed to certain information that it wants. Let's say traffic information. And the traffic information becomes available, and you want to make this available. So there's um, you, with using messaging. If you were using a messaging protocol, whatever, you just go and feed. You want to feed information to that car um, as it becomes available. Um, the car may be going through a tunnel. The car may be, you know, just switching cell towers. So very often you will find that you can't reach that car. And so if it acts as a server, well, then you have to go and establish a connection, and then you need to go and send send something to it. But you need to have effectively, as you're sending that data, the car needs to be available. It needs to be there. Otherwise, you don't have a way. And, and then you're just sitting there with your server component. You're waiting until that car shows up again. And since it's hopping networks, you're re- resolving DNS, et cetera. So that's all very complicated. Yeah, plus have, you know those things don't expire that fast. Yeah, exactly. So it's it, it is a hard hard problem. The interesting thing is the solution for this is so trivial that once we tell them that trick, they're like, "Why didn't I have that idea?" Uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> it is It's all been really, a setup, folks. It's a setup. Yes, it has been a setup. So, it's actually very easy. You make a little mailbox for each car. So let's say car. So you on this on a server, you are addressing the car by its name. You give the car an ID, and the car ID is a VIN, maybe. Um, and you make a little bucket where the commands land. Mm-hmm. The car, whenever it sees network, will go and connect to this to a system, and it will go and say, "This is me. Do you have any messages for me?" And then you deliver the messages to the car. So you move the addressing from the edge, so from the the car um, and and its network address, to a gateway that sits on a server. So now, if you're sending a command to the car, you're you're not trying to resolve an address or do anything on the network, but you rather are dropping that into a little bucket. um, And that bucket might look like a queue. And then right. um, as soon as the car shows up on the network, and it doesn't matter what address and it doesn't matter which network, it if it finds a path to that little bucket, it can go and get that data. Now, the interesting thing is if you're using a, t- contemporary, a contemporary messaging protocol, you can keep that connection open and maintain it for, you know, as long as you um, are booked into that same, into that same cell. Um, and... Which means the latency. Once you, if you're sending that command into that little bucket, into that queue, the through the the past latency can be as little as uh, you know seven, eight, ten milliseconds on the back end, 
and then you're only getting the 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 cellular latency, which is you know between you know, 200 milliseconds and, and and a second sometimes. Um, but you're actually losing almost nothing for that uh, that intermediary step. But the nice thing you gain is that if the car is actually going through a tunnel or switching the tower, you can still drop that message decoupled. And then the car just comes as soon as it sees the network, it comes and picks up that message. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a, if you have a command that that should be executed immediately, like unlocking a car is something you want to happen now or never, right? You want right. to you want to push right. the button and the right. car should unlock, but it should not unlock uh, unexpectedly in in uh, in a, in an hour. That's right. It should do it when I say or not at all. Exactly. So you're setting on those commands. You can set uh, effectively a time to live. Right. When you, that you, where they put that command into that into the into the queue, and then um, when that when the time time to live expires, then the queue the message just goes away, or gets dead letter, so you can actually get feedback that the command wasn't picked up. But th- yeah, you can but even that, see that with traffic data because it suddenly becomes irrelevant once you've passed that area. Yes. So you, yeah. So you can do that too. Is so you can go and effectively um, set a TTL on anything on any data that becomes relevant over, over time. Um, right. But you can go and affect it directed directed to that device. So so basically, what we're do, what what you're doing with that model is you're pulling addressing away from the edge of the ne- of the network by making the device always a client. Mm-hmm. So it's never a server; it's always a client. Right. And with that, to loop back to the where we started with all this to the security discussion, you're now solving very elegantly with that model also a bunch of security concerns. Yes, you are because it's never going to answer the phone. Exactly. Yep. So. Let's let's say you have a device that is, and what we're interested. So, frankly, what we're interested in as Microsoft, and this is why we we care about this, is volume, right? We do big data center uh, big, big data center operations. Um, we um, and we believe that we have the right stuff um, across the seventeen data centers that we run within this Azure, with more coming. That if a customer comes to us and says we want to put four, five, ten million vehicles on the road, we believe we have the capacity sitting in the data centers that can go and help with that. Um, or if someone wants to, you know, sell hundreds of thousands of of, um, of household appliances or kitchen appliances and want to make them wants to make them smart, we believe that we have the right capacity for them. Now the interesting thing is the the let's 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 assume a product because that actually helps with the with with illustrating the point let's say you want to make a toaster a smart toaster and that smart toaster is um, is connected and you want to have that smart toaster be able to ask for the weather because you want to toast a sun or <laughs> uh, or a rain, rain cloud or a snowflake on the side of the toast you know what I love about this, this <laughs> example? It so illustrates the ridiculousness of connected toasters, which has yes. been, which everybody brings up. You want to connect your toaster to the internet, and then I always say, "Why?" But because you, because you can know the weather report, right? Before you <laughs> even your get toast. dressed, <laughs> exactly. Before you even get dressed, I mean that is that is actual. You know, this is value. That's awesome. Okay, so that toaster. Without the so the normal toaster without the capability of of knowing the weather and toasting the weather on the toast, <laughs> um, sells for thirty nine ninety five plus tax. <laughs> that that I don't know, added, this is a premium toaster, dude. Forty four ninety five. Uh, it's made in Germany. That's why. I was I, there. I, you I, go. Well, I'm I'm getting there, Richard. <laughs> I, I actually this was exactly what I was was about to say. That premium toaster, which has that. F- Additional fabulous functionality is going to be forty four ninety five, right? Because nice. you can't ask for more. So now this is getting interesting. It you costs have five. It costs, a, from what I understand, it costs about a buck to put any kind of little web calling device into a manufactured thing like that, doesn't it? Yes, it can't cost more. Yeah, because a right. ten ten cents. If you make a million of these things, ten cents is money. Right, and so that's what we're seeing with all of this. With many many of those engagements, is that um, Moore's law actually works in completely a different direction now. It works on footprint. So the Moore's law is about uh, uh, um, uh, integrated circuit density, density, really. And what that right. has meant so far is we're making things more with more capacity, and we're making it faster. 
for the same price. Yeah, for the same price. What it means now is we're going to make things. We're actually taking the 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 gains in smaller footprint, and we're going to, going to make the chips smaller, so we can go and put more on them on the wafer. We can make more of them at the same time, so they get cheaper. Mm-hmm. You can get now right. from from NXP. You can get a, a Cortex M0, which is a 32-bit microcontroller um, with a footprint of two by two millimeter. Um, wow. And then yes, and then for how you much? Can, uh, how, how much that costs? Yeah. Cents, fifty cents. That's awesome. Most, it's 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 very very little. I don't even know what the exact price is because you, with the microcontroller guys or just the, the component guys, you never find out the real prices, uh, because right. you need, you're you're buying that stuff in huge volumes, and uh, so you need to be on the buyer side to actually know what the real prices are. You, you can go you can go to, um, some websites and kind of get a guess, but then there's huge discounts on those things. So it's kind of hard, kind of hard to know how how much those things sure. cost. But but those microcontrollers Any published are number is sort of a high water number. There are lower numbers to be had. Yeah. So these are these things are running at you know a few cents. It's not it's it's cheap. And then the the the, the power the power consumption is also a big factor. We have there's a lot of applications like you have a you have a glass break sensor. Right in your in your um, building, and the mm-hmm. job of that thing is to alert you when the glass breaks because someone is breaking in, and then you want to have an occasional idea of of whether the glass break sensor is still okay. So it, you have kind of a, a bit of a heartbeat thing going on, but a glass break sensor that you basically put on the on a on a window, you want to put on the window and forget. You will not right. go around the house changing batteries on glass break sensors. You put that there, and it needs to work forever, basically. It needs to work for 10 years or for five years. You don't want to worry about right. this. So, and everybody is, everybody is annoyed. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the mandatory uh, um, uh, smoke alarms that people have in their houses? Yes. The, the battery always uh, goes empty at 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. It starts to beep. <laughs> it starts to beep at two a.m. in the morning. It always it happens to everybody, um, and it does that kind of predictably on a schedule of a few months, and that's annoying um, because that should also not be necessary that that happens that way. So what what we're doing is we're moving to a um, a much more battery operated kind of world where um, just energy is there or energy gets harvested out of the environment, but stuff needs to have right. little power. And then there's there's capabilities that are people building into like thermostats, for instance, um, where the thermostats get smarter and they get integrated into all these these um, these uh, um, uh, you know smart environments. But the wiring in those in the buildings are, is not changing. So you have no. two you have two pairs of control wires sticking out of the wall and no ground, which means you don't have enough power to power a device that actually talks Wi-Fi. So now you need to go and first. Um, steal power from the control wires, and now you have a milliwatt uh, budget that you need to go and use to do compute, and then you also need to use to go and, and put the, uh, you know, have a manage your use of wireless connectivity because you can't keep the radio on because you're going to burn all the power that you can steal from that control wire. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of interesting scenarios which and where you have to go and manage um, power, and and Moore's law kind of goes into that. Go back to the point. How does that matter for security? Um, it matters for security because those devices become smaller and smaller and smaller, uh, and they use less power, which means they're going to have less capability for doing heavy-duty crypto. And they can't defend themselves because they're not set up to de- defend themselves. They can't act as servers. They can go and create a route out to a server that will then go and help it. It will. It is the first line of defense, but they have no way of keeping track of you know, off credentials and validating the credentials, you know, validating a certificate and all those things. They can't do that. Even TLS, which is kind of the foundation for every TLS is what we assume is the is is the basic the foundation for, for transport security for right, everything. It's sort of lowest common denominator. You expect right. TLS. Yes. So there's TLS and DTLS. What that requires right. commonly is um, is certs. Validating yes. certs and crunching you know, the, the signatures and dealing with the RSA algorithms and actually having all the cipher suites on board that you can go and encounter in those things, is that's a huge burden. That's massive. And you, it, you have a huge footprint. 
and coming back to the the what I said about the relationship between the systems and the peripherals, the the peripherals where they're paired with that system have no promiscuous relationship. There's no third party trust that needs to be there. Right. So the PKI actually doesn't it doesn't add anything. So so to recap, these peripherals should always be clients. Mm-hmm. They should phone home regularly, and when yep. their when their data changes, yep. should keep all of that stuff in a bucket, and yep. have uh, uh, the communication happen between the the main server and it, and that's it. Yeah, and they exactly. So they are they are paired with, paired or peered with, depending on how I want to say it, um, with a server, and that server knows knows their identity. So what we're what we're doing right now is we're we're um, uh, creating a profile. Well, we're not creating it. We're starting to leverage a profile of um, of TLS, which is defined in um, take pen and paper RFC forty two seventy nine, which is uh, TLS with pre shared keys. And the nice thing about TLS with pre shared keys is it needs no certs. Should There's we? No should I call acronym police here just uh, for those who are awash in three letter acronyms? Request for comments. Well, I know that. Uh, well, I do know that one. But uh, RFC is request and TLS for comments. Is, yeah, transport TLS layer is transport security. layer security. All right. Yes. And PSK is pre-shared key. Okay. Right. And that's the big difference here is instead of having to negotiate the keys to do the encryption, you actually get the devices together at the beginning and they share the key and they can pre-compute the comp- encryption. Right. That is correct. So the, yes. in other words, the the... What what was it? Would it be an RSA key, the initial key, to no. send the symmetric key? So there's so the, the um you seed the device with a key as you make it in the factory. A symmetric key, a big one. Yes, it's a well. Yes, it's a symmetric key, and there's and and now the model actually gets simpler because what we there's a bunch of things we know on the silicon side, and we're actually working with some silicon vendors to make to make those things happen. In the T, so you all know TPM, right? Mm-hmm. The Trusted platform module thing. Mm-hmm. So, a trusted platform module does does the following principle, and that's something that we also are working to to make um, happen with silicon vendors. And that is, you have a slot for a key on the silicon that you can only write to. Okay. So you can write a key into that slot, but there's no way to programmatically get it out. And then there's a crypto box on on the silicon, which implements um, AS AS two fifty six and SHA two fifty six. So whatever a, a small suite of algorithms that are Got implemented it. straight on the silicon that cool. can read the key, but you can't. You, there's no way of programmatically stealing that key. Nobody can walk up to it and read it. Only the code that needs it can use it to encrypt. Exactly. Only only the 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 silicon encoded code that can go and 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 read that key. I like but, that because you know right? what we cool. do now. What we do now with SSL anyway is we take. Uh, a shared a uh, public RSA key that is well known, and we encrypt a on the fly symmetric key, and we send that, and that you know that key could be hell. I mean that that's pretty that's pretty ballsy if you think about it, because you know the NSA could be looking and cracking RSA. So what we're doing is now we're seeding the device with a key that you embed in that device, and nobody can ever get it out other than using using the key for those purposes. I love it. So, so the device now shows up at the at the server at the gateway and says, "This is me," and you can read this in the RFC how this works. And says, "This is me. Here's my ID." So that's something they need to know. It's kind of a key identifier, and then the server and the server sends a challenge that challenge that gets computed with that little crypto box right. on the device. Um, gets then being sent back uh, to the server, and the server can then va- uh, can then go and do the computation with the key that it knows, and uh, verify that that's there. There is no certificate that's that's required here. Yeah, I love it's, it. And it's much it's much lighter weight. And the nice advantage of this also is, if you're coming then through an M two M mobile operator contract that is super greedy in terms of volu- data volume, right? A few megabytes. That's that's what's currently the standard. Of, you know, 10, 15 megabytes per month. Uh, for those M2M contracts, um, sending a cert of like 5K over the wire is a big deal if you're doing that every two minutes as you're renegotiating. Re- so there's so that handshake is much much lighter weight, and you can actually go and do this with three uh, with three algorithms, 
and you're actually saving saving all that extra overhead that you have to do for 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 certificates you can save that i'm not saying that pki is bad i'm just saying for that particular case of of a device acting as peripheral to a system where that there's a strong peering we don't have to have that complexity sure and you can save that processing power you don't have to figure that out every time clemens exactly. is that technology available for standard pcs um, and devices, so, mobile phones and things? So the particular capability of actually saving that key is something that's part of the TPM specification. So what we're trying, what we're trying to do is we're basically trying to take that particular capability and we're trying to convince um, silicon vendors to actually just make that part of the, the standard set setup of, of microcontrollers. Love it. Nice. So you, that, you, that you can have that on the, on the super simple chip. And that's a foundation, cap foundational capability for you know, making all the communication happen. And then you need to get on the wire in some way, and then you can go and choose whether you're going to use UDP or TCP or any of those things. But the principle is that the device always communicates out and that you have a, a gateway that goes and defends it. And that's the thing we're building. Um, we're building such a gateway. Um, and it turns out that if you need to have the, the, a thing that you can go and connect to, and you can connect, you know, a hundred thousand or, or a million things to, and then you also need to have a little box uh, where you can drop off commands, and you also want to go and get the telemetry somewhere stored so you can go and sustain the load of, you know, all those connected cars getting on the street in, at eight o'clock in the in the morning in Europe, which means it is all one time zone, right? Right. <laughs> so rush hour in Europe is uh, all the cars, all the new cars are on the street. Um, and we're talking about millions and millions of vehicles who are on the street. So if you want to collect telemetry, right. live telemetry from them, you have to have pretty beefy systems. And you probably can't offload all that data straight to storage, but you, it, you'll you be better served in putting that into queues first, and then you kind of bleed that off into the backend stores um, at, during the day outside of rush hour. So you're actually well, pretty well suited with that model if you have a broker in the middle, if you have a queue in, queuing system in the middle. And that turns out we're building one. Um, with service bus. So that's kind of the, the story, how we get there. We, we, we're, we've seen, we're seeing a bunch of these, these issues. So we started with addressing and we're also talking about security. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the core things that we see in terms of, of challenges uh, in that space and really across that entire space. And the thing we're building with messaging is actually comp is, is, is composing with that really, really well. And uh, so that's why we're making that investment, why we believe we actually have a good platform. And uh, that's also why the customers are coming and say, hey, um, we would be interested in, in having and in building solutions for, um, for ourselves um, and, uh, and use that sort of principle. So when are we going to see this on the road? Yeah, Clemens? really. So those things are already on the road um, in, in POCs. Um, what what's what's on the road today? Um, I have so I have an I drive an Audi, um, and that has uh, some internet capabilities and also gets live traffic. Um, there's BMWs with connected drive um, who are having similar right. capabilities with 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 BMW. If you're in the right country, um, you can get an app and you can go and and switch on the heat in your car when it's in the winter. And so there's all kinds of things you can do already do, um, but those. The systems that are behind this are not necessarily scaling well. So they right. they they sell this for five thousand euros because also it kind of protects them from having the systems be built out to that massive scale that they would have to if it was all in all the vehicles. So what we're seeing right now is that the the first trial balloons have been rolled out and they're kind of in the products. And now companies currently are shipping products in tens of thousands. Um, in terms of numbers, but that's not the the numbers where they want to get to. So we're in in the phase where we're starting to see all of this stuff happen, and um, we're um, uh, probably a year or one and a half years away from this hitting the mainstream in terms of 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 those systems, um, where we're actually supporting that massive scale. And we're doing two we're actually doing two things. So what I what I was just talking about is the stuff we do on the pass side. So platform as a service. And ultimately, for those kinds of systems, you not only need that connectivity piece that I just talked about, we need to have data analysis capabilities, and yet eventually you're going to need machine learning capabilities. You need to have identity management, right? You need to have an active, active directory or some kind of a directory that can actually hold the identities for 10 sure. million, 50 million cars, right? So you need to have all those different components. So that's what we're doing on the PaaS side. And then on the SaaS side, 
So software as a service, we're kind of building a solution for kind of the, the 80% case. If you have a, a street lamp, the street lamp doesn't have a lot of data that you have to feel figure with. And um, you need to turn it on and off and permit this temperature reading and the status of the the um, the illumination materials, whatever that is uh, in there. Um, so an application to manage street lamps looks a lot like a management application for PCs. Um, so there's there's something we're building called the Intelligent System Service, which is kind of a mix between um, a management application management platform and kind of an application platform for you know the simple devices and the simple cases that we're building, and that's going to be a finished finished thing. That's something that has uh, been announced by um, Satya Nadella. Um, at an event uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and, so, and that's something that is kind of riding on top of these platform abstractions that we're building. So we're going to have some finished services that are kind of um, something that you can use for um, devices where you basically just write a driver um, and uh, it constrains you, but it makes stuff that is that is very easy. And then if you need to have the full power of the platform, you can come down on and just build your own complete solutions on Microsoft Azure um, with the gateway capabilities we're building that we're optimizing for those cases where we're implementing that principle as, that I call, so client connects out, I call the service assisted communication. Um, and then also, you know, build solutions that are then inc including your own data center. If you have the feeling that um, the data is safer in your own data center than it is in ours. Right. Comes back to your opening, the opening that you had with uh, sure. the, that discussion. Um, which sure. is interesting. It sounds like you're headed towards uh, providing the groundwork software systems for self-driving cars. Uh, yes, we are actually. So when you when you when you think this further, um, uh, let's say you want to have a, a, a public transportation system, bus system, right? You create transparent. Once you once you instrument all your bus stops with sensors that tell you how, where the people are, you can go and start redirecting the buses, and you can make the the routes actually um, um, very uh, dynamic. Mm -hmm. and once you've had those, once you have those dynamic routes, then all of a sudden you're uh, you know telling the driver where to go at each street corner. And once you're doing that already, then you know it's a very short step to actually uh, to you know have the bus driver um, be uh, a robot eventually. Sure. Bad for bus drivers. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, but but we're going to have them for a while. And the the, yeah. the current the current thinking in the automotive industry around the the those autonomous vehicles is uh, that they're going to have that ready in probably seven, eight, nine years, not earlier. Mm -hmm. Because right now, all the wonderful demo videos that you see are um, under the best of all per possible circumstances, mm -hmm. and uh, they can they can drive autonomously. Um, but if something happens that is actually security critical, then um, the systems are not doing so well yet. Mm -hmm. And they need to be perfect mm -hmm. because uh, you don't want to be sitting there reading a book and get killed because the system just uh, um, has misinterpreted the situation. So that's going to take a while until that's Oops, actually done. Oops, blue screen, duck. Nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hold on. All right, Clemens. Hey, well, man. that was a fast hour. Yeah, sure has been. Uh, wow. Thank you. This is great. What a great story. Well, we're, I'm really excited about this. Like, um, I'm a messaging dude, and I have been a messaging dude, and now all of a sudden that messaging dude stuff becomes actually really important. Yeah. So it's uh, and it actually becomes really cool, and uh, so I'm I'm glad that I stuck around and didn't do something like uh, user interface technology, which is now kind of not so interesting anymore. Right. In the light of all this amazing wonderfulness. Absolutely. All right, man. Thanks for thanks for talking to us. We'll see you sometime thanks. soon. I hope. Uh, yes, I will be happy to give you an update as we get updates. Okay, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com 
for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a